Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we pray that you would allow us to hear well your word this morning. We pray, Father, even now that you would forgive us of sins that we have committed this week, even this morning, for which we have not confessed and been reconciled to you so that we can clearly hear your voice from your word this morning. Father, you alone have the words of life. Therefore, we must listen. And Father, if we do listen, then it will be a joy and a delight to us. We pray that we will not be double-minded, that we will not be conflicted, listening to your truth, but holding on to our preferences, holding on to our sin, holding on to what we think is wisdom. Father, instead we pray that from the pulpit to the pew that we will yield to your truth, to your wisdom, that we might know life. We pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. For Christians over the last few hundred years, the most read book after the Bible is John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress. Originally published in 1678, it has never been out of print. Aside from Beowulf, it might be the earliest work of Christian fiction, but it wasn't aimless fiction. It wasn't just a diversion or a flight of fancy that Bunyan had in mind. He wrote this book as an intentional intentional allegory of the Christian life. It was his desire to teach the church through this fictional work. And that allegory wasn't exactly a hidden feature. It was a little obvious when you had characters with names like Pliable, Faithful, Evangelist, Mr. Worldly Wise. His intentionality was very clear for everyone to see who would pick up and read this book. It was easy for people to grasp, but the book wasn't simplistic. Just the opposite. Bunyan sought to utilize the narrative and the dialogue dripping with biblical quotations to teach insightful and essential theology for the Christian life. Theology that pointed to Jesus while wisely guiding, challenging, and motivating believers to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil on their way to the city of God. Though an instant bestseller, it was not without criticism. Some people said to Bunyan, we love your work, but dear brother, where is the church in the Pilgrim's Progress? Where, where do we see the church there? You see, Bunyan's book, which in case you don't haven't picked up on this point, I would commend to you to read. Uh, get the modern language edition if you need to, but I would encourage you to read that book. That, that book was centered on an individual's journey from hearing the gospel, trusting Christ, having the, the, the guilt of his sin removed from him in a dramatic way, and making his way to heaven amidst spiritual war. And though aided by some individuals along the way, there was not any real depiction of Christian community. And so several years later, Bunyan published part two 
of the Pilgrim's Progress. This saw the Pilgrim's wife and children making their way now to the heavenly city, the the city of God. And with the same skill and pastoral wisdom seen in part one, Bunyan now was able to wind out lessons about life together in the church. And over these last few weeks, we have been seeking to do just that show. Both the individual's necessity of faith and salvation in Christ, but also their relationship to the rest of the people of God, to the church. And we've done this through our series on membership and baptism, looking at the nature of the church, the importance of membership, and the meaning of baptism. And it is my task this morning to try and weave all of this together. And so to do that, I thought it might be helpful to consider the kind of logical path, the journey of a believer who first encounters Christ and what the expectations might be after that. Namely, how does he begin to follow in obedience after Christ and how is it that they become part of the church? And the passage that came to mind, uh, the one that seems to lay this out on the surface quite easily is here in Acts chapter 2. And so this morning we're going to walk through the second half of this chapter. So if you would, as is our custom, I would encourage you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and follow along as I begin reading at verse 22. For context, Christ has ascended back to the Father after His death and resurrection. He has poured out His Spirit as promised on His people, and His dramatic display has grabbed the attention of the crowds, and they gather around the disciples to wonder what is happening in their midst. The Apostle Peter explains, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Hear it and believe. You may be seated. This morning we want to hit at a high level what is taking place in this passage and walk through again the logical progress of our journey from faith in Christ into His church that we see from this passage. And that journey begins first when we follow Christ as His disciples. When we follow Christ as His disciple. This is how the Christian life begins. Looking to Jesus in faith and following Him as a disciple. And our first step even in that first part begins when we hear Christ proclaimed in the gospel. Christ proclaimed in the gospel. The the gospel of Christ must be preached because this is the means by which Jesus calls his disciples to himself. We see this throughout Acts. We see this throughout the epistles. The message of Jesus Christ, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection for sinners is the means by which God uses to save sinners. Sometimes people just pick up the Bible, they begin reading, they see the gospel, God opens their eyes, and they believe. But most of the time, most of the time, it is someone else who is intentionally speaking these truths. It is someone who is intentionally sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone else, and God uses that to call His people to faith. Notice the essentials of that message that Peter lays out here, namely that Jesus was not merely a man, but a man sent by God whose mission and ministry was authenticated through signs and wonders that God did through him. That was according to God's plan that this Jesus come into the world and be crucified. On the cross, he endured the Father's wrath, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. Every judgment owed to us for our rebellion against God was satisfied, was endured by Christ on the cross. Because God accepted Jesus' death as a saving substitute for sinners, He raised Him back from the dead. That is the promise that that Peter picked up on from the Old Testament that David himself about his son had seen and had predicted that Jesus would not be left as a rotting corpse in the tomb. We raised back glorious to life. And more than that, not just raised back to life, but exalted the Father's right hand. The Father, the Creator, the King of all things said, Now Jesus, sit here at my right hand while I work to put all of your enemies under your feet. So so Jesus is exalted to be the reigning King at His Father's side. And notice that Jesus, excuse me, Peter lays the guilt of Jesus' death on those that were there. He said to them, God has exalted this Jesus whom you crucified. Why would He do that? 
Because they literally were the ones who crucified him. They were the ones who testified before him at a sham trial. They were the ones that brought false accusations against him. They were the ones, when given the opportunity to set this innocent man free, instead yelled, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In a very real sense, they are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Nevertheless, if Peter were somehow here today and to look at us, he would actually say the same thing. It was for your sin that he hung on that cross. For all of us are born into this world, sinful. And that becomes evident from the moment we are loved by a parent or an adult who seeks to try and change our diaper. And what do we do? We don't lay still. We start rolling around. We start smacking hands. We are rebels at heart. It only gets worse as we get older. But that rebellion is not just against adults and authority in this life. It is ultimately rebellion against God and His design for the world. We live against God. We are God's enemies and therefore we deserve His judgment. But when we look to Christ, we find a Savior. But that salvation doesn't just happen. We're not universalists. The Bible isn't universalist. The Bible says there is a place called hell and there are sinners that will be there for eternity being judged for their sins. So, so how do you escape that fate? How do you partake in this salvation? Well, well, Christ is not just proclaimed in the gospel. He must be embraced by Savior, but by a Savior. And, and, and so, so in our journey, though these things sometimes happen very quickly, we, we hear Christ proclaimed and then Christ is trusted by faith. Christ is trusted by faith. We grab hold of Jesus and make Him our own. So, so here in our passage, the crowd hears Peter's explanation of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and, and they, are, they are cut to the heart with guilt that they had a hand in this. That this really was the Messiah, their Savior, King. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? When, when preached rightly, the gospel calls for a response. The gospel calls for a response. This is not just interesting information that we're sharing. This is just not like a, a, a meme that has showed up on our on our social media feed that's uh, that has some facts about the coronavirus that we want to get out to people. This calls for a response. It demands us do something with the information. We will either reject the gospel or we will accept the gospel. You either hear of Jesus as the Savior of the world and say, I need that Savior... Or you say, no thanks, I'll make my own way. I'll find someone else to make me right with God or, or one with the universe. But, but the entire Bible makes clear that it's not anything that we do. It's, it's not anything that we do that acquires this salvation that Christ has earned. It, it's, it's, not as, it's not as if He's doing His part and then we do our part and somehow salvation comes to us. No, the Bible is clear that the salvation that Jesus has secured for us only comes as a gift of God's grace. So, so Paul will later say in his letter to the Galatians, a person is not justified. A person is not declared righteous before God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 3, he says, for the righteous, righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, so when we hear Jesus, his message to us, the message of the gospel is not, here is a nice guy who has led the way, now you've got to do something to be saved with him. It's here's a guy who's done it all. Here's a Savior who from beginning to end has given to us everything that we need to be made right with God. And our, and our initial response to receive that, our only response to receive that is embracing Him by faith. Receiving the gift of salvation that is offered to us. And yet, 
And yet when we do that, there is a further response that logically flows out of that. More than that, that is expected. And that is within the life of the disciple, we will see Christ obeyed in life. Christ obeyed in life. We we do not obey in order to be saved. Instead, we obey because we have been saved. That, that, That is the natural response of someone who sees their need of Christ, who embrace this Christ for saving, with saving faith. And this gets at the meaning of the word disciple itself. It's someone who follows after Jesus, learning from Him, and obeys Him. In fact, when Jesus first called His disciples to Himself, it was a very simple command. Follow Me. Follow Me. And as they got up from whatever they were doing, whether it was their fishing boats or was it their tax collecting booth, they followed Jesus and then He taught them for several years what it actually meant to follow Him. What it actually meant to be His disciple. And on the big picture level, one might summarize that by Jesus' words in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. The, the, the Christian life is not just about God talk. It's not just about some isolated Scripture verses that make us feel good in the morning. It's a call to die to ourselves and live in obedience to Jesus, this One who has saved us, this One who is now exalted by God as our King. That that may not sound all that appealing to us. That may not sound all that enticing until we can get our minds around this important reality, I think, encapsulated so well by the words of a man named Trip Lee, this, the good life is the life that's been laid down. The good life is the life that's been laid down. In other words, the the best life you will have is the life that obeys Jesus' words to die to yourself and live to Him. And Jesus Himself endorses that. Because in the very next verse, He says, for whoever would save His life will lose it, but whoever loses His life for My sake will find it. Good things come to those who follow Jesus by laying their life before Him and saying, it's not about me anymore, it's about you, Jesus. It's not about what I want to do. It's not about my priorities. It's not about my preferences. I am now your disciple, and you're going to guide me and lead me and teach me in the way to live. You know, at at our work with our computer systems, we use a software program that we have not designed in-house. We have bought the rights to use that. Uh, Maybe we rent it. I, I don't know what the financial agreement is, but... Um, we have very smart people who have been trained how to use this thing. They know it more than the average person, but guess what? It still messes up sometimes. It still breaks down. It still malfunctions. We get error messages, and people don't have any idea what it means or how to fix it. So you know what we do? We call the people who wrote the software. And we say, hey, this thing isn't working. We can't help our members. We can't give money out. Help us. What does this mean? How do we fix this? And Jesus is saying something very similar here. As humans, we did not self-invent, right? We have a creator. We have someone who has designed us. He has designed the world in which we live. He has designed things like the laws of gravity that make our life make sense. And the worst thing we can do is look at that creator and say, I don't need your help. I don't need your advice. I'm going to run this thing by myself. I'm going to figure it out. I want to be a self-made man. I want to be a self-made woman. No. No, this is how we tear our lives apart. This is how sin flourishes. In the the grandest sense of the word, this is how wars start. Not, Not just out there between nations, but within our own hearts and within our families, and destruction ensues. But Jesus says, 
Jesus says, if you, if you lay aside your wisdom, if you follow the wisdom of the one who has created you, if you follow me as a disciple and you allow me to show you how to live, then here's what you can expect. Maximum joy in this life and the life to come. Here, here's, here's what you can expect when you follow me. Wisdom, comfort, joy for all of your days, even in the midst of very painful situations and circumstances. So so as we think about this kind of beginning step on the journey of God's people, where are you on the journey so far? Have you heard the gospel before? Well, I know you've heard it at least once because I just shared it to you. But hopefully you've heard it before that. Have you heard of Jesus? Do you know who He is? More than that, have you rejected that message or have you come to embrace it? Have you come to make Jesus your Savior? And in doing so, have you have you consciously made the decision to say, I'm not just going to coast, as it were, on that forgiveness that's been given to me. But am I actually going to acknowledge what Peter says? And that is, he is not just the Christ, he is also Lord. He is my master, I am his disciple, therefore I will follow after him in obedience. Again, not trying to earn salvation from Christ, but as a response to the salvation you already have. Obedience is lifelong in our journey as Jesus' disciples. One of the first ways we obey Christ is by heeding His command to be baptized. And so this is kind of the, the second big step on our journey as disciples. We proclaim Christ through baptism. We proclaim Christ through baptism. Baptism is often called the believer's first act of obedience. That's, that's part of the design of the ordinance of baptism. Notice in verse 41, Luke tells us that those who received the word were baptized. Why were they baptized? Because that's what Peter said to do. He said, repent and be baptized. To put it another way here, we might say those who responded to the gospel in, with faith in Jesus were baptized. And this follows on from what Pastor Greg taught last week about the nature of baptism. It is a physical act that symbolizes, that represents the spiritual reality that has taken place inward between us and God. When we have embraced Christ, our old selves have died with Him and we have a new life in Him. But some will pick up on the promise that Peter makes in verse 39. Look again to the text. Just before that, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And so they pick up on that promise that this this message, this, this response is for your children, and therefore they believe that Christians should baptize their children. Now, as we address this, let me be clear, I don't have an axe to grind on this issue. Okay? Uh, I alluded to one Christian rapper before, Triple E. Uh, a lot of other ones that I enjoy uh, spit bars with a Presbyterian accent. Okay, um, and, and when it comes to faithful evangelical gospel, even Presbyterians, I have far more in common with them than some Baptists who would do things like deny the exclusivity of Christ or the inerrancy of God's Word. So I'm not trying to create an artificial division here where where there doesn't need to be one. At the same time, Providence is a Baptist church. Not by tradition, but by conviction. And so we want to make clear why we are convinced of these things. And it's 
obviously beyond the scope of this message to address everything uh, related to this in detail, but I do want to pick up on this because it does affect how we understand our journey in this life as Jesus' disciples. So as we heard last week, we want to remind ourselves first that baptism makes faith public. Baptism makes faith public. Who is baptized in our passage? Those who repented, those who received the word of the gospel of faith, and those whom the Lord had called to Himself. And so here, just looking exegetically at the text, those who are baptized are those who knowingly trusted Christ as Savior. And there is no example anywhere in the New Testament of anything else. It is always belief and then baptism. Accepting Christ and then making it known through the waters. And that makes sense when we understand that function of baptism to publicly announce our faith. Why is that important that we do that? Well, about 14 years ago now, I was uh, on a trip to West Africa. And morning and evening, we were in this little uh, bush town called Bankalare. And uh, we had people coming uh, both, again, in the morning and the evening. And they were curious Muslims about the Bible. And they were also uh, one believer and a couple other people who said they were believers, but they had not yet been baptized. And they were coming and they were listening to me teach through the life of Abraham with an eye towards Jesus Christ and the gospel. And usually it would run with me reading through the text. Then my Christian translator, Muhammad, would read the text in their language. And then I would make some comments. Then he would translate. I would make some comments. He would translate. I would make some comments, translate, take questions, pray, and we're done. And a lot of good questions, a lot of good thinking. And this this unrolled throughout the week. But then on the last night as we have the, 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 the last little bit of embers of our tea uh, gathered around this little table with, with, with some crackers, I, I get to the point of saying um, a, a full gospel presentation. I, I lay it all out there that in order to be a true son of Abraham, you do not worship Allah through Islam, but you worship Jesus Christ and live as one of His disciples. And I ended, Muhammad translated, and there was a pause. And then Muhammad started talking again. And he got louder. And he got more animated. And I thought, I didn't say all this. And, and, and he just started going and going. And he jumped up from his chair. And, and, and he's, he's just really going after it. And he grabs the table and he starts shaking it. And I thought the teapot was going to fall over. And I thought, what in the world is he going on after? And here's, I found out later what he was going on after. He was nailing some of those people that were sitting there saying, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the people from his own people group, who had said, well, I, I'm a believer, but I don't need to baptize. And he said, Jesus' people don't hide under tables. He said, Jesus' people don't hide their faith. If you're really a disciple, then get in the water. Get in the water and make it known. Now, it's one thing for me to say that, because that's going to cost me very little in this country. But in that country, someone had already gone through the waters, and guess what? People stopped buying from a shop. Nobody threatened his life. They just changed his livelihood. So slowly by slowly, he's selling off acres of his farmland to other people because he's got to feed his family and nobody's buying from his shop. There was a cost to making your faith public. But guess what? You say, well, maybe Muhammad was, was getting a little rough there. No, 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 no. What did Jesus teach in Matthew 10? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Christians do not hide their faith, even in the face of persecution and difficulty. 
here in Acts 2. Remember, this crowd has been hostile to them. Just a month before, they crucified Jesus. And he tells them, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. And they do. 3,000 of them respond. In case you don't know, that was not the entire Jewish population of Jerusalem. So here are 3,000 people that are throwing down in front of their kinsmen according to the flesh and saying, despite what you think, despite the fact that you just killed this man, accusing him of being a terrorist, stirring up trouble in our, in our country, we are identifying with him now and saying, we live for him. He is our Savior. He is our King. But the call to be baptized is a call to make public one submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord. More than that, though, baptism is also a pledge of the new covenant. Baptism pledges the new covenant. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus offered His life to ratify and establish the new covenant with His own blood. And His people enter the covenant by faith, but again, publicly, we make a pledge and say, I am going to live as a part of this covenant through baptism. 1 Peter 3 says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the baptized believer is not just saying, well, I'm trusting Jesus. That's good, but that's only part of it. He's also saying, I am pledging to live as one of Jesus' people with Jesus' other people. I am entering into the new covenant and I am promising to live faithfully in that covenant. And this is one of the key differences between the old covenant that God had made with Israel and the new covenant that He has made through Christ and the church. In the old covenant, one could be a member of the covenant in Israel apart from genuine faith in God. I mean, do you understand that, that in the old covenant, most of the Israelites were not believers? We will not see them in heaven in the new creation of the new earth. God always had His faithful remnant. But simply by means of your ethnic identity, being a son of Abraham by physical descent, you were part of the covenant community in Israel. God called for faith. The expectation was of faith. The desire was of faith. But you could be in the covenant apart from faith. Therefore, children, as instructed by God, were brought into the covenant as infants, as infants but they had to be trained. They had to be raised. They had to be taught to know the Lord and to live by His law. Now though, on the other hand, Jeremiah says in the New Covenant, there is no need for members of the New Covenant to look at one another and say, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. Why? Because now in the New Covenant, only those that know the Lord are in the Lord's Covenant. We don't look around at people within the New Covenant and say, hey, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? No, no, no. Because by, by default, you are not in the Covenant unless you already know Him unless you are a partaker of His salvation. And so when Peter says the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, I don't think we should take from that, by the way, this means baptize your kids. You had circumcision in the Old Covenant, you have baptism in the New Covenant, boom, there you go. No, in fact, what's interesting is that the, the New Testament goes out of the way. It goes out of the way to draw comparisons between circumcision of the flesh, and baptism. Instead, it says, in the Old Covenant, you had a physical circumcision. In the New Covenant, you have a spiritual circumcision. 
Paul and Peter and the apostles say, what was done with a knife and the flesh under the old covenant is now done by the Spirit in the new covenant. And it's not just for the sons of Abraham. It is for all the children spiritually of Abraham, all the believers, men and women in this new covenant. So, so I take that to simply mean this promise of salvation is even for you Jews who have killed Jesus. You can partake in this salvation. More than that, your descendants from now into eternity, they can partake in this promise of salvation. Along with that, the Gentiles, those who are far off, they can partake of this promise of salvation. And ultimately, who will this be? The end of verse 39. Everyone who partakes will be those whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And so the new covenant is not a mixed covenant. There is no genealogical principle. Grace does not run in the genes. Some of us know this well. Some of us have grieved our parents because they raised us in church. Maybe they even baptized us as infants. And what did we do? We ran the other way. We said, I want no part of that. No part of that whatsoever. And maybe by God's grace, we've been brought back with a genuine faith of our own trusting in the Lord. But we also have very faithful parents, believing parents who have sought to raise their kids and they go astray and they never come back. And they never come back. Does that mean we give up on them? Does that mean we turn them aside? No, we, we, we still pray and we share Christ and we love them and we long to see them be part of the new covenant. But the point is, in this new covenant, the Lord calls His people to Himself they put personal faith in Jesus for salvation and then they announce that the world through baptism. It's not anything that someone else can do to bring you into the covenant. I mean, this just, just makes sense, right? If you are a sports fan, I think a couple of you in here are serious about sports. Um, you know the color of your team, right? So when you turn on the game and let's say you had something else to do and you're coming right in the middle, you don't have to guess Who's on my team? Where are they at? What's going on? Who's got the ball? You just immediately look at those colors and you identify and you say, oh, that's my team. That's my team. Likewise, as Bobby Jameson says, baptism is the team jersey of Christianity. Everybody who has gone to the waters of baptism are on the team. We're not waiting to see, will they be on the team? We don't say, well, they were baptized into the covenant as a child, but now we're waiting and hoping they're going to come and have faith as adults. Yeah, we we want our children to be saved. Desperately so, don't we? But but they're not part of the covenant until God calls them. And they respond by faith. And they go through baptism to say, I am taking upon myself the privileges and the responsibilities of the covenant. It is only for believers. Baptism is only for believers, repentant, called by God, and publicly marked out. So several implications flow out of this. We only have time for three this morning. First, parents. You believe your child has understood the gospel and trusted Christ for salvation, they should be baptized. There is no reason to delay. On the other hand, if you feel like that they have trusted in Christ, but they don't understand baptism, and that's why you're holding off, let me just gently but clearly say to you, if they don't understand baptism, they probably do not understand the gospel. Because baptism is simply meant to picture the gospel. And so don't force them into the waters of baptism because they're likely not ready. They have... As W. Criswell used to say, taken a step towards the kingdom, but they have not, they're not yet in the kingdom. They, they can declare back truth about the gospel to you, but they have not necessarily embraced it by faith for themselves. At the same time, 
There isn't any biblical reason to withhold baptism from those who give every evidence of a credible profession of faith. In fact, to do so would be contrary to Christ's command on the practice of the apostles. There was no extended delay. No one said, hey, I think I'm a believer. And we said, great, come hang out with us on Sundays and eat and drink our bread and join us in the family meal. Uh, and maybe someday you'll get around to baptism. Nope, didn't happen that way. Didn't happen that way. Second, as a church, we must work to ensure that those we baptize are truly believers. We understand this makes sense, right? If the new covenant is only for believers, then those that we baptize to bring into the covenant should also only be believers. During the rest of the book of Acts, as we've already seen through Pastor Rick's sermons and some of my sermons, uh, God wanted to dramatically make clear there were no second-class citizens of the kingdom. So as the gospel went from Jews to proselyte, Gentile proselytes who were living as Jews, to Samaritans, the half-Jews, half-Gentiles, and to the Gentiles, what did he do? He would pour out his spirit in dramatic ways. People would, would speak in tongues and all kinds of things would happen. And it was an important symbol in the age of transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant to say, everybody is welcome now. And you don't have to do anything else to get in. You don't have to become a Jew to be partakers of the New Covenant. Well, now the, the, the church is fully integrated with, with, with every peop, kind of, of, of person out there, Jew, Gentile, uh, people from different continents. God has no need for those kind of spectacular signs anymore to authenticate the, the, the belief of different kinds of people. Nevertheless, the responsibility is now on the church to have some kind of examination. So you don't just say, well, I'm a believer. Great. Baptism, join the church. Well, what do you understand a Christian to be? Tell me about how you came to know that information. What do you believe about Jesus? There, there, there has to be some way of, of asking someone, of acknowledging whether or not they truly are a believer. And since baptism is designed to unite a person to the local church, this kind of examination tied to the membership process is helpful. Because again, baptism is what brings you into and unites you not just to Christ, but to His people. And this leads to the, the final implication. There is no reason, if, if baptism is for genuine believers, if it's their way of proclaiming Christ, pledging entrance into the new covenant, then there's no reason to withhold membership in the church to any baptized believer. But we love our orphan care ministry here. But to say, you can be a baptized believer, but you cannot be a part of our church, is like saying, I'm going to adopt you as an orphan into my family, but now you're not really going to be welcome in our family. You don't get to sit at the table. You've got to sit over there in the living room while we eat dinner. We're, we're leaving you behind when we go on family vacation and when we attend the family reunion. That, that doesn't make any sense. Anybody would look at that situation and say, you've not really adopted that orphan. You're maybe taking care of them, but you've not brought them into your family. Likewise, to say someone is baptized and a part of the kingdom and they've identified Christ, but to say, yeah, but we're not going to let you join, doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. If, if they have trusted Christ by faith, we see the fruit of that faith, we baptize them, then membership should follow. This is part of our journey as Jesus disciples. And when we are on that journey, having it, not just put our faith in Him, but having proclaimed Him through baptism, then we are brought in to serve Christ with the church. This is the, the last step that we want to look at this morning. Serve Christ with the church. Not surprisingly, this means that we must unite with the church. We must unite with the church. 
In our passage, Luke says that those who received Peter's words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Out of the church. Uh, you can look in every concordance. You can look in every translation. Uh, maybe the new, maybe the Living Bible has it. I don't know. But the word membership is not really anywhere in the New Testament. Okay, uh, not, not as we would use it today. And yet, and yet, the idea is clearly there. Jesus made it clear that from his saving work, a people will be gathered together as what? As a church. That's what he would build. He would not just build disciples. He would build a church made up of disciples. And his apostles and himself employed all kinds of metaphors of the church that emphasize that believers are parts of a whole, right? So, so we looked at this earlier. We have the imagery of a body and a family and a house and a temple used to describe the church. Just stop and think for a minute. The implications of uh, uh, of this. If someone were to be a believer but not part of the church, it, it would be a horrific scene to just see random body parts, organs lying spread out in a room somewhere. The, the, the sorrow of a child living alone on the streets without a family. A, a use, the uselessness of bricks just scattered out loose in a field somewhere. It, it, the, the New Testament has no category of a believer who is disconnected from the local church. It just doesn't exist in their minds. One naturally leads to the other. Faith in Christ leads to partnership and membership with His people. And certainly, membership in the New Testament times, I mean, they don't have buildings like this. They're not wearing you know, microphones and worried about batteries holding out and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, you know, they, they don't have mops and brooms and nurseries and all kind of stuff. So membership might look different for us than for them. But nevertheless, it was essential. They knew, we can see from the New Testament, who was in and who was out. We see that from the many references and acts that specific numbers of people were added to the church. We see that even from the list of widows, that or references rather, to lists of widows that needed care. And so like baptism, the local church membership is a, is a matter of obedience to Christ. And so we just put the question to you this morning. In that regard, are you living out of step with Jesus' vision for the life of His disciples? Have you been here just attending week after week after week after week, month after month after month after month, after month year after year, and not actually formally united to a church? Hey, I love this church, or else I wouldn't be here, but if you feel like for whatever reason you can't join this church, then find a church that you can join. That's my loving exhortation to you, because Jesus expects all of His people to be part of a church. Maybe you've grown up in this church. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe according to our current standards now, um, you've reached that 17 age and you're past that now where you can become a member, but you're just on autopilot. I'm not sure if I want to be a member. I might go away to, I might get away to school and I might do this and I might do that. Can I tell you something? All of those are important questions for you to figure out about your life, but here's a question you need no one to help you figure out. God's will is for you to be a member of a local church. Could be here, could be there, could be anywhere. We, 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 we pray it's a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, right? Like ourselves. It doesn't have to be here, but even if you go away, that's okay. Then, well, like our brother who's back visiting here, you will find a local church when you go to school and you will unite yourself to there. God has no idea. He has no place. He has no thought that one of His people, one of the people for whom Christ died, would not be living, connected, committed to the bride for which Christ died. What's stopping you right now from joining the church? Well, once united with the church, we should worship with the church. 
we should worship with the church. The, the meaning of the word church is tied to the idea of gathering or assembly. Okay? Like another well-known group of people, the church assembles, right? Every Sunday, we assemble. Being with other believers is essential. That's even why we're here today, and this is not anything new. Okay? We look back to our passage. Luke says that thousands were newly saved. And what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Compared here to what comes next, I think Luke may actually be describing what the Sunday service looked like for these believers. Christ-centered teaching, engaged relationships, fervent prayer, and gathering at the Lord's table. Are all, all are essential ways that we worship the Lord together. So what Luke is saying, because remember Luke has written, written this gospel not just to tell us historical facts, but to give us example and instruction. He's not just saying, this is what happened, this is what the life was like in the early church. No, he's saying, this is what life in the church should continue to look like. That this, is, that this is what churches should look like until the Lord returns for her. This is what all disciples should do. At church, we gather together to worship. But we don't stop being the church when we walk out the door. And this is why Jesus also calls us, to, calls us to love with the church. Love with the church. We are saved as individuals. We are made to be part of a people. And as a people, we are called to love one another. Look again at our passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Luke says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And this was not something forced. Unlike some other people in different contexts, no one is going to say here, hey, you've got too much. You need to give us your fair share. Give more. People are hungry. That's not going to happen. Okay? Didn't happen then. It's not going to happen here because that's, that's not the attitude that we have. It is, the, it is Christ working in us that causes us to generously give as we see here. The church willingly and joyfully loved each other to the point of acting this way. It's always going to have the opportunity to brag on you, my church now, but I want to take a minute and brag on my former church. That was my first pastorate, and it, by all accounts, was not easy. Melinda and I had only been married a few years. I was a recent graduate of seminary. We had a one-year-old, and our purpose in going to this church was to revitalize it. It was a dying church, and we wanted to see it come back to life by God's grace. When we arrived, the church had about 20 committed adults. And they said they wanted to be healthy, but making changes proved to be difficult. Some didn't want to change. Some liked doing things the way they had been doing for various reasons. Added to that, we were far enough away from our family and friends, at least a day's drive, that we felt lonely and sometimes even isolated. And after being there about a decade, God did something very kind to me. I was preaching through Luke's gospel and was struck by the promise that Jesus made in Luke 18. Here it is. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come with eternal life. Suddenly it occurred to me what God had been doing over the last 10 years that I was not immediately aware of, the great kindness He was showing us. Because though we were far away from our parents, God was causing older couples in that church to love us like their own children. In fact, one couple used to actually give us money when we were about to go on vacation, cash in my hand on the last Sunday before we leave, and they weren't even doing that with their own children. 
I grew up as an only child, but God gave me brothers and sisters, uh, friends that were just as close or closer than family. Yeah, yeah, there were difficulties of every kind, but, but those difficulties ended up coming with a new family called the church. Not just in name, not just in laughs, but a new family in love, and it was glorious. And if we are not careful, we can become programmed to think, what can this place do for me? Not what can I do for this place and this people? Ask yourself, who do you love at this church? Not just who do you enjoy being around, but who do you really love in this place? Do do you pray for them? Do you pray with them? Have you sacrificed for them? Do you think of them and treat them like they are your family? As an axe, if they really came down to it, would you be willing to sell possessions to help provide for their financial need? This is God's design for our life together as His disciples in His church. On our journey with Christ, we are called to unite with, to worship with, to love with, and finally, to make disciples with the church. Make disciples with the church. In addition to the many ways that we serve, the most essential is disciple-making. We teach believers how to obey all that Christ commanded. At the end of Matthew 28, you've all been around in the church uh, for any length of time, this one or anywhere, that those verses at the end of the gospel should just be uh, ones that you know by heart, you know by memory, you know this is what Christ commanded His people to do. And, and that command brings us full circle to the journey. Just as we heard someone preach the gospel of Christ to us, and God called us to put our faith in Him, which then led us to follow in obedience to Christ in baptism, and a church welcomed us in. So now, as we join together and support one another, we go out preaching Christ that God may do it again and again and again and again. We preach Christ so that people inside the church will be built up, and people outside the church will be called to faith. Even here, Luke says, thousands were saved, baptized, and joined the church. And then in verse 47, from their life together, what happened? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The growth didn't stop, just the opposite. The number of disciples multiplied. How did God do that? Was it signs from heaven? Was it angelic beings flying through the air blowing trumpets? No, it was the church making disciples, just as it should today. Back in 1985, the city of New Orleans was celebrating a year of safety at one of its municipal pools. It had gone a full year without injury or incident. Over 200 people were gathered together at this celebration, half of which were lifeguards. The very pool that, that was like the, the shining star for the city of, of no problems. But after the, the day of partying and festivities drew to a close, it was discovered that Jerome Moody, aged 31, was dead, fully clothed at the bottom of the deep end. Here, here was a man who had been surrounded, literally surrounded, with a hundred lifeguards. But no one watched him fall in the water. No one watched him come back up. No one noticed the body at 12 feet under because they were distracted by the celebrations around them. Loved ones, may that not be the same with us. God has been gracious to us with this big building, this nicer look of things, but we cannot forget the reason that we exist. We cannot forget the reason God has blessed us with this, namely to make disciples. The community, the country at large, this world still has many that need to hear of Jesus who need to be taught how to live as His 
disciples. And the last thing that they need is our preoccupations or excuses for not doing that. For not honoring and obeying and glorifying our Savior King to those that do not know Him. And when we falter in that calling individually, who do we have but God's people there to help get us back on track? Jesus Himself ministering to us through them. So I pray at the end of these four weeks, we would be renewed in our understanding of these things, of the church and baptism and membership, and we would be refreshed in our commitment to them to live out this journey together as Christ's disciples. Let's pray. Father, I am so very thankful for everyone in this room. For the people that have invested in my life and the life of my family since I've been here. The people that have become our friends. The people that we are growing to love. I'm thankful for those who have expressed a common faith in Jesus. God, I'm thankful for those that are here that are not part of our fellowship, but this morning at least, if not for the last several weeks, have heard the truths from Your Word about Your design, Your intention to exalt Your Son above all things as our Savior and our King. And how that has worked out practically in the lives of His people. As disciples who, who want to obey Him through baptism and through uniting with the church and how that, that obedience continues even in difficult times loving and living with one another. We pray, Father, that You would in these coming moments bring encouragement and conviction that You would renew our sense of purpose and identity in Christ that we might live faithfully in the days to come. I pray now that in the following moments that You continue quietly in Your hearts praying, asking the Lord to do these things, to convict You, to encourage You, and to renew